Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daly Knives, and this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 088, The Beginnings, Dan's Origin Story, or Meet the Man That Destroyed My Life. How you doing tonight, Kyle? Doing pretty good, Dan. That was a pretty good intro. Thank the, you. Uh, it's starting to get really dark really early here. It's like 4.50 or something. It's starting to be pretty dark and it's like really dark by 5 15 or so I, i've had a few panic moments because uh you know when it gets when i look out out the window and it's dark i know that i've been at the shop too long and i'm in trouble yeah um and i've come home early a couple of times this week thinking that i was way late so we, we're having a similar phenomenon here <laughs> for a while there i forgot to fall my clock back in the truck and uh gave myself a few uh few scares i don't know why when i scared myself the first time i didn't just immediately change it to the correct time but decided to because you're a man <laughs> decided to roll it over a second time i can't wait till we stop doing daylight savings time I, you know i just I, I drive an old ass truck that doesn't have a clock in it and that's kind of problem solved for me yeah it's kind of nice to have a clock Look, if you don't know where you're going, you can't be lost. If you don't know what time it is, you can't be late. <laughs> Unless your wife knows what time it is. Hey, look, man, if a man's honest with himself, he's going to be in trouble with his wife. You might as well know the reason. <laughs> All right. So what are you working on this week? Um, I have decided to, to absolutely crush my soul. And part of my uh, my Christmas run up has been some ten uh, inch magna cut uh, chef's knives. Okay, I don't remember why I hate myself so much. Um, I, I I guess I'm trying to slip in under the wire with Santa Claus by some self flagellation. I'm not really sure, but but here I am, looking upon my fields and seeing that they are completely barren. Yeah. How about you? Uh, Trying to get some of the last minute orders done. Uh, I've also been uh, messing around with my forge. I got a, an oh. Apollo forge uh, from Brent and Brian House down at uh, housemade.us. And uh, the finally, or I've gotten through their whole uh, curing Very procedure good. for the Castellite and stuff. So it's ready to rock and roll and uh, made a little base for. Uh, a smaller anvil that uh, one of my buddies let me use until I, uh, whenever I want to give it back. Yeah. Uh, he said, just don't sell it. <laughs> I want it back. If you ever decide you don't want it anymore. I'm like, all right. I've so got I, a couple of deals like that out there. And now I'm trying to remember who I loaned it to. <laughs> I, uh, uh, use the wire wheel and use some flap, uh, sandpaper 
uh, discs and like cleaned up the horn and stuff from all the, the really rough gouges and stuff and sent him a picture of it. And he goes, uh, where'd you get that? He's <laughs> like, that one's yours. He's like, huh? Doesn't look like the same one I gave you. Like, yep. I, uh, I just picked up a little 150 pound anvil that I think I'm going to, uh, get refaced. Mm-hmm. Um, cause uh-huh. I, I, too, I'm going to take a look at the dark side. I heard they have cookies. Yeah. 150 pounds. Isn't really a, a small one. Well, it's not a really big one. I mean, you know, it, yeah, it's size is relative. I'm not judging. Um, the one I, the one that I, he gave me was like 40 pounds. No. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Well, my rule of thumb is if I can pick it up, it's a small anvil. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have to pick it up and not struggle or? You know, I, I really hadn't thought it that far out. I mean, if I can pick it up, it's not a struggle. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I really should say, if I can pick it up and move it. Yeah. Because um, if I can pick it up, but I can't walk with it, then it is a big anvil. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to get a little bit bigger one when hopefully I'll make some stuff and make some money off making some little trinkets and things. And that'll help me buy a, a better anvil. I've been looking around on Facebook marketplace and stuff at used ones and anything that's halfway decent. They want like two times what a brand new one would cost from Holland anvil or Texas farrier supply or wherever you're looking. So Man, it's the uh, downside of all these people getting into knife making. Yeah. You wouldn't believe how many uh, Harbor Freight, uh, that Doyle anvil, that people uh, scrape the paint off of it, <laughs> grind the Doyle off of it. And then, because uh, it costs like, I don't know, a hundred bucks on sale or something like that. Yeah, or maybe no, even less. I've seen, I've seen a couple where. Uh... And they're selling them on Facebook Marketplace around here for like 500 bucks. Like, hey, I've doing? seen a couple where in the picture, like you can see little flaws that have still got blue paint in them. Yeah, yeah. The, these are the Doyle is their new one. They're they're painted red. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, not nearly as bad. No, nah, either way, I mean that that's the kind of guy you need to smack with a hammer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. Since we're being all cheery and festive and our, uh, is this going to make it out before Christmas? Yeah. Um, is this our Christmas show? I'm going to try to, uh, get this one out, uh, by the end of the week. Oh, sweet. For the, all right. Get us back on our first and 15th, uh, schedule. Well, let's get all Christmassy and I'm going to have another sip of eggnog and let's get happy and shiny. Let's quit talking about people trying to scrooge us out of our tiny little hearts. <laughs> Let's talk about some good people that offer good products like Jance Knife Supply. And with Jance Knife Supply, not just during Christmas, but any time of the year, if you use discount code KPGRIP, you'll get 10% off your handle material. Now, just a little heads up. If you're buying stuff other than the handle materials, you'll need to check out twice because that, that code only works if it's just handle material. But our little gift to you is 10% off on all of your Jantz handle materials. Yeah. How was that for a segue? That's very good. And uh, if you're looking for other handle material that you can't, that uh, Jantz may not have, and uh, some great people too, Atlas Materials is a great supporter of the podcast. They have pretty much anything you can possibly think of. 
Uh, they're even getting into a lot of the the woods and stabilized woods. Uh, they're refer wood. I used uh, a couple of blocks of that, and uh, it's super dense. Uh, whatever stabilizing resin that they have for that or using that, it's uh, really hard. It's like they're get, it's like they're actually getting complete penetration or something. Yeah. So make sure you check those out. And then Atlas, they also were running a bunch of uh, sale deals and stuff on their eBay page. So uh, check out a lot of like uh, limited time sale stuff there. Uh, I've started using some of their two and three tone uh, layered pens. Okay. They've got a really cool effect. The one eighth inch pens. Sometimes it really pops and sometimes it gets a little lost, but the bigger pens, it, it looks pretty cool, especially when you're using, uh, uh, if you're using kind of a simple handle material, then the multicolored layers in the pens kind of give it a little pop. Uh, and it's a, a cost-effective way to, to add a little, I believe as the kids say these days, bling to your, <laughs> uh, your handles. Yeah. Uh, cool. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I saw. I saw somebody wearing a grill the other day like that. <laughs> they put on their teeth with all the diamonds and stuff. It's like, yeah, man, hadn't thought about that in years. We also, one of the sponsors of the podcast, Phoenix Abrasives, and you can use discount code KP10 for 10% off your order. That's all of their sandpaper and products that they sell. Make sure you check them out. I've been going through a bunch of belts, grinding a bunch of Magna Cut and uh, 154CM cpm 154 have been working on this big chinese cleaver that's uh four inches by eight inches for the blade and finally got it hand sanded it's uh ready for a handle i'm a little uh concerned about doing the handle on that one because i i do my coke bottle shape usually and uh i usually hold up at the tip and kind of hold at the the butt of the handle and kind of give my fingers a little twisty twisty to kind of put that curve in there and uh, the blade's so big on this that uh, <laughs> it's going to be like turning a big uh, piece of sheet metal. Um, and I have had to uh, triple tape. Um, I'll triple mask the blade when I do the cleaver sometimes because mm-hmm. I'm not used to having that extra steel. And if I don't pay attention, I'll actually rock the blade into my wheel Yeah, and then put a big nasty grind mark into the blade that I had just cleaned up. Yeah. I may put a something sim- you may may want to think about. Yeah, I use the elect- or electrical tape, which is a little thicker. Might have to put a second layer of that on there just in case. And I usually don't have the mask, the hand or the blades mask while I'm doing my handles. But I'll use that um, outdoor waterproof uh, painter's masking tape. Mm-hmm. And I like I said, I'll put a couple extra wraps on there so that when I get the little. Yeah. Sensation, I haven't actually hit the steel yet. Yeah. Uh, if you guys use masking tape, make sure you uh, check to make sure that uh, it doesn't have acid in the adhesive. So or at uh, least I, I had that happen one time on a bunch of my Damascus blades right before uh, blade show. And I had to rehand sand and etch all those the day before I was leaving. So yeah, that's why I use electrical tape. It doesn't have any acid in the, in there uh dan's had good luck with that outdoor one uh but yeah just be careful guys don't leave the if you use electrical tape or or mask like masking tape uh painter's tape uh 
uh, just don't leave it on there very long. Um, yeah, sure the blue tape, up. one is low acid and one's not. And I get confused on the two. So if I'm using the blue painter's tape, when I'm done for the day, I peel it off, clean the blade and give it a little oil. Yeah. Um, and I even do it on the stainless steel because I've gotten some pitting. Um, I think it was S35VN and it was just little pin pricks and maybe 10 or 15 of them on the blade. Yeah. Uh, but I've had it bite me even on stainless steel. Yeah. And I don't understand why it's in there to begin with. Like, I don't know. Uh, Must be something on the engineers. Help with getting the processing done. Anyway, uh, we're way off topic now. We are. Uh, uh, we get back to Phoenix Abrasives. Yeah, I just did Phoenix Abrasives. Yeah, so you know we're coming back to them. That's yeah. our starting point. Okay. And now we'll move on to uh, Ridge Runner Blades. Uh, Ridge Runner Blades, man, uh, I have heard rumors that they have outgrown their corner of the store and they are looking at building their own brick and mortar. Nice. Um, they have really pushed the volume. They're now going to try to start this coming year and start uh, doing some more kitchen knives, which clearly I'm a big fan of. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in the area, it's well worth stopping by and checking them out. Uh, their current location, uh, they share space with a Pew Pew store. So there's a good chance there's a little, you know, a little column A, a little column B. I, I, I wouldn't discourage you from checking them out. You can pick up you can pick up some uh, freedom seeds while you're getting some knives. You can, you can. Um, Taylor has done a phenomenal job growing them and has been a really good guy to work with. Um, they're carrying some dogwoods right now, and he is the first dealer I have ever had that calls me to ask, "Have you gotten your check yet?" Yeah, you know, nice. frequently. Yeah, you know, it's it's in the mail. You got to run them down. He's one of us. He gets it. Uh, he really has taken care of his his makers. So I got to throw a thank you in there. And kind of a, you know, for us, by us. You know, if you're a knife guy and you're a maker, let me tell you, the guys at Ridge Runner, not only do they carry good products, but they take care of their people. Nice. And uh, to quote one of my many icons, uh, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Uh, and we also have set supply spencer ed and todd doing some awesome things over there in southern indiana excited to to see some stuff that's going to be coming out of their shop uh ed was telling me the other day that uh him and todd are going to be doing some folder classes he i guess ed found uh and i was not sure where that was going to go and i am so glad that it went with folder class (laughs) uh apparently ed found uh a guy that's going to going to show him and Todd how to make some folders. So um, might be some cool stuff coming out, out of the, the shop there. Yeah, I might see if I can, uh, I, I'll, I'll bring a, a six pack of beer for Ed and a six pack of Coke for Todd and see if I can sit in on that. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Could be good. Could be great. Yeah. And what about our really our primary sponsors, our OG guys? I mean, the the ones that have been there literally since show one. Let's give some shout out to those guys. Yeah. Cage Daily girls. Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives. Or the wives thereof. 
And you can find Dan's and Dan and Kyle's knives at Knife Center. I believe there's still one of mine on there. Uh, saw there was a, I think a couple Echo Fives that you had still there. Yeah, um, I just sent up a batch of the new MidTech Echo Fours, and um, by the time this show airs, some of the uh, I did a bunch of kits and Magna Cut. Okay. I did one. I, I, I'm not going to lie. It, it was a little bit of a challenge to put it in the sheath and shift it out. It, it, God, I want to keep it so badly. Was that one of the uh, Dichrolam ones? Yeah. The Dichro quilt, uh, quilt. Okay. Um, man, I, I lucked into a sheet of that stuff and I am so glad I did. It is, ah, uh, it, it's bling to the power of bling. And I am not normally a flashy guy, but I I, I might have given my myself a chubby. <laughs> and uh, you can find Dan, uh, Dan's other knives at the the Cook Station, Blade HQ, Ridge Runner Blades, and Asheville Crafted Edge. And you can find my knives at Northside Cutlery with Kevin Silverman. Going to be take hopefully taking him some knives uh, early next week. Going to try to get a couple of knives uh, over there. He's and, been moving a lot for you. Yeah, he's been doing a great job. He said they had a really good uh, week last week. Lots of lots of foot traffic and stuff. He uh, is down to only one of my knives on the on the block. So, uh, well done, man. He's asking for some more. Yep. Thought he was going to have enough to make it through Christmas, and um, been a lot of people. I guess words getting out about uh, about them and. Getting a and lot more touch you with somebody, and your knife started moving, and here you are. Yeah, well, it carries a whole bunch of us Chicago knife makers, so it's been good to see everybody. It's pretty interesting. He said, kind of all of us sell at a similar rate because we all kind of have a little bit different style. Uh, Sam does a lot of like uh, Hamon uh, blade stuff. Yeah. Dylan does a lot of Damascus stuff, and yeah, we all. I do a lot of the mono steel stainless stuff. So one time he had a person that came back and he had a, or they had a Japanese chef's knife that was carbon steel and it was all rusted. <laughs> he was like, all right, how about you get one of these cage daily knives? <laughs> <laughs> you you need modern steel. Yeah. You need something that won't rust. And then you can find my uh, knife making tools at uh, Phoenix abrasives and housemade.us and you can find my file workbook at USA Knife Maker and Jance Knife Supply and also on my website. So the the sanding buddies, as much as it pains me to give you a compliment, really do. Uh, I think I've got four of them now, plus the radius guide. Mm-hmm. I think it's 36 inch. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it pains me to give you a compliment. I, I I'm not going to lie, but. They have really made a difference. Yeah, I really like them. I've been using a ton of them. Um, hand sanding those S-ground MagnaCut blades. Uh, I've been using a 14-inch wheel uh, recently for the hollow. And, uh, man, that one cut uh, really well. When I was using it for sweet potatoes and yeah. did some carrots and stuff like that, It that uh, deeper hollow really, really seemed to help. Yeah, I, I imagine it reduces the wedge effect and it, it gives you a relief. Yeah. The thing about going to a tighter radius though, is you have to, you can't go 
down as far if you oh. especially if you do it on both sides yeah. um don't or don't want to grind through the middle and also uh oh that if, could actually be cool kind of like a, a pass through fuller yeah maybe <laughs> oh, um dibs <laughs> um but yeah i'm uh sorry i threw you off didn't i yeah the idea of a pass through fuller, like your, your head, <laughs> I saw you like short circuit and go, that's a hole. <laughs> yeah. I did. Yeah. Not for me, but, um, yeah, I, on my first one that I did, I went a little, or, uh, went, uh, an eighth of an inch farther down the, towards the edge. And I pulled it up a little bit on this last one. So that the blade isn't quite as, uh, flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, but always trying it trying different things and I like that the uh these are a little bit more stiff. You know, and there's we're back to that fine line between changing things is how you get innovation, but change it with a purpose. Like do being different just to be different that's that's unique and unique isn't necessarily useful. Yeah. Um I digress. Yeah. You got any shout outs? I do. Um, I I want to throw some love out to uh, Mad Max uh, custom knife scales. Yeah, I had been buying just um, his spec stuff because I got a little sympathy. He uh, he grew faster than he could manage. Got buried in his back orders. Um, was struggling with communication. Was struggling to get stuff out. It's a ding, but. It's one that I'm guilty of repeatedly, so I'm, I'm going to throw him some grace on that. But he's getting caught up on his back orders. Uh, I still, man, when when he puts stuff up on spec, I grab it. Uh, I've got a couple of custom orders that I just put in. He's he's kind of cleared the decks. Uh, I've changed his, his social life situation. He's really focused, spending a lot of time down with the, the epoxy. And uh, he has tweaked a couple of things, and his images are a lot clearer. You don't get – I thought they were really clear to begin with, but his new stuff now, the the detail is really sharp, especially with, like, the rattlesnake pattern. Yeah. I, I, I noticed a, a significant difference on this last batch. So I wanted to, uh, to throw it out there. I wanted to acknowledge that he's made a lot of improvement. Um his quality has already always been great, but he's starting to get product out again. So if you see stuff come up, I really recommend you grab it. Do you want to, we're going to try to do some collaboration stuff. We've been talking about it for a while. We have, I didn't think we were going to tell people about it. All right. There's a radio radio tease. You got to listen. Keep listening. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think we're going to do, I think, do we decide to do three knives? Uh, maybe, maybe definitely at least one with a, uh, a custom knife perspective handle. Um, you know, I, I think we'll do like, I'm thinking maybe one a year and this year you do the blade profile. I'll do the handle mm-hmm. and then next year we'll flip it and I'll do the blade and you do the handle. Okay. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll keep working on that. Um, I wanted to give a shout out again to uh, Derek Melton. Um, I didn't realize his uh, 
little swage blocks. Um, they were kind of doing one run of them and then they weren't planning on doing another order. So I got the V2 one that has uh, some of the more spoon uh, cutouts and stuff in it. The And spoon shall be my battle cry. Yeah, I'm thinking about making all sorts of little little tiny things out of uh, some of the stainless and stuff that I have left over from offcuts and stuff. But his V1 one was more for uh, they had some like circles and things in it. The V2 one has yeah some more ellipses and stuff. The um, they're like a five inch square and like two inches thick. So pretty cool little deals and. Hopefully he's going to uh, be making me a hammer in the new year. So uh, pretty excited about that. You want me to jump into the next one? No, no, I do not. Because that's my man, my go-to guy, uh, Chef Ralph. I uh, I want to give you a little bit of a thank you. He's been doing some field testing for me. Been sharing a little knowledge, which I have really appreciated. Uh, coming up in the new year, we're going to have a couple of new... Uh, New uh, kitchen accoutrement coming out that uh, he's been testing for me. Side note, I didn't realize it. That dude does 1,600 covers a day. Yeah. That is 1,600 meals a day, mm-hmm. um, which just kind of blew my mind. Does he work for a university or? He does. He okay. does the, uh, he runs all of the dining facilities for uh Bob Jones University. Hmm. And I'm not going to lie. I giggle with the, the short Italian Catholic that runs the dining facility for Bob Jones. Um, but they absolutely love him and for good reason. Yeah. And he is, I mean, he's a classically trained chef that has really elevated their dining facility. But as much as most of my chefs, you know, in one week, they can get me eight or 10 weeks, 20 weeks worth of a, a kitchen chef. Doing the volume that he and his people do, like one day is equal to a month in some places. Yeah. So he has been phenomenal for really dialing in some stuff for me. Yeah. If you don't follow his Instagram, it's pretty cool. He'll uh, sometimes do like a whole pig and stuff like that for special events there at the dining facility and stuff uh he's done uh bacon wrapped whole alligators um uh for thanksgiving he did it was 800 something pounds of turkey and he did all of that in one day yeah um he does some some amazing volume oh he did a whole an entire uh he did an entire steer one day um like an entire freaking steer that's pretty crazy. He is a he is a very cool dude. Yeah, I need to make it out there to Camp Morningwood sometime. First rule of Camp Morningwood is you don't talk about Camp Morningwood. <laughs> uh, I want to give a shout out to Grumpy Grunt. Uh, he did a video on my pocket bushcrafter, uh, saying it was his 2023 knife of the year. I was pretty pretty excited oh. about that. Oh, he did, did he? Yeah. Oh, I'm I, I'm sending some texts right now. Oh, wait, no, he bought that in 22. You know what? I'm sending a text about he hadn't bought a knife this year. 
uh, I'm actually going to be on his live in two days. It'll be, uh, you'll have to so watch it. It'll not been live last week when the show comes out. But uh, yeah, he, he bought a Bushcrafter and uh, the bigger four inch one. And uh, he's going to do the unboxing on his uh, Thursday night. What does he call that? The monkey so, something uh, live. So I'm going to try to so be there at least so for a little bit of it. Is, so four inches is large for you. That's the larger than my pocket Bushcrafter. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. My pocket Bushcrafter is like just over three. So, hmm. um, hey. yeah. You know, if we're not all built the same, I, I get it, dude. <laughs> uh, all righty. Uh, you wanted your next one? Uh, edge and flow. No, no. Edge and flow is you. All righty. Uh, wanted to give a shout out about the edge and flow podcast. It's TJ Schwartz and Lucas Burnley are my next shout out. Double X knives, Neil Green. He gave us a shout out on his page, said some really nice things about the podcast. And he also I uh, mentioned the edge and flow one. Um, they used to not be on Apple podcasts, so they were on uh, Spotify. So I was listening to them over there. And then I thought you were going to say they were Android. They're on Spotify. Now <laughs> they're on the Apple podcasts and uh, I got a lot of shows to catch up on. So um, both those guys are really good. Um, Neil mentioned uh, that one too. And uh yeah, Lucas Burnley and TJ Schwartz are both uh, guys that do a lot of production stuff. So it's really neat listening to them talk about some of the stuff they're doing for Kydex production. And um, I think it was TJ was the one that was doing a uh, video series on how to use Fusion 360. Um, so uh, lots of cool stuff there. I may have gotten that backwards, but you're good. Yeah. So uh, definitely check them out for some more um they're really good they they uh i learned something in pretty much every episode that i listen to i have to check them out i have uh uh, as i may have mentioned i have a metric buttload of hand sanding to do over the next couple of days and um i cannot stand the sound of my own voice so i'm gonna have to check them out yeah and Neil is a really phenomenal dude. I know you put his name down, but uh, I'm going to meet you on it. I had the chance to meet him at one of the Blade Wests a few years ago and was a really good dude. And I've enjoyed seeing kind of how his work has developed. Yeah. He makes some super clean, um, like smaller fixed blade knives. He does a couple that are like... Uh, Kind of Why fixed are you blade. so fixated on size, dude? Uh, he like does, that feels Freudian to me. <laughs> he does some that are like fixed blade versions of, um, of some traditional slip folding knives patterns. Yeah, so there's like yeah. a, so a Zulu saying, pattern was, and see, stuff like what that. We what? No, go ahead. <laughs> uh, alrighty. All right. Um, uh, we teased it earlier, but uh, I wanted to, to to mention John Blazy. We've had him on the show a couple of times. Uh, his Dicro quilt that he has started doing is absolutely amazing. It's the Dichromium film, and we talked about it on his 
his episode, but it's got some rolling 3D dimension to it that I mean, it's mind altering. I started saying the way it reflects refracts light, but it doesn't refract it. It's it's got an opalescent effect. You'll have to listen to the podcast. It was over my head, but the way it bends light and gives depth and detail is really amazing. Very cool. Alrighty, you want to introduce our guest for tonight? Um, you know, considering you haven't, uh, have you met him yet? Yep, like face to face. Okay. Yeah, I've met uh, I met him at Blade Show a couple couple of years. Okay, well, regardless, as that he ruined my life and or got me started in knife making, kind of same same. I guess it would be appropriate for me to introduce him. Yeah. All right, tonight's guest. Um, I'm really conflicted. Um, first of all, I would like to to be very clear: no goats were harmed in the making of tonight or next week's podcast. I want to be very clear about that. Um, and I, I am torn between a deep sense of appreciation and the fact that he has utterly ruined my life. Um, tonight's guest will be the man who got me into knife making. Um, he is also in competition for the most interesting man in the world. Um <laughs> So he's a fascinating dude, but he has caused me to waste the last 15 years of my life. Um, but without further ado, tonight's guest is my original mentor, Mark Hopper. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Doc. How are you doing tonight, Mark? I'm doing ground. I'm doing ground. Um, all right. Um, some of these are very loaded questions, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You know, we're going to start. We're going to start with something very simple, very clear. Where did you grow up? Yes. <laughs> uh, I am a complicated individual. So um, I was born in Holland. Uh, my parents, or my father particularly, was um, working overseas with Shell Chemicals. So I wound up being born in Holland and uh, spent the first few years of my life over there. That explains uh, the Dutch accent. Yeah, the, the Dutch accent. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, and then when we... Uh, when he moved back, you know, I, I had to get rubber stamp because I was something that they procured whilst overseas. Uh, so, what was the tax burden? <laughs> probably too little for the cost. <laughs> it actually cost them in the long run. Uh, so at that point, we moved back to the north of Britain, which is where my folks grew up. So my father uh, grew up in Lancashire, my mother in Yorkshire, and they're a collection of uh, Scots and Irish and all kinds of stuff like that. So. Uh, no, good classic uh, British mutt. Um, spent um, spent the first portion of my life around that kind of Cheshire uh, area, and uh, wound up going to. They figured out I was dyslexic, so they wound up sending me to boarding school. So my first school that I went to for that was um, just outside of Jodrell Bank which is where the gigantic radio telescope is oh. in Britain. So we actually, from the rugby field that we used to play on, you could see this gigantic pudding bowl <laughs> looking out into space. Uh, and was, was that early teens? Um... <laughs> it's difficult to remember. Probably, I think I was about 11 when right. I went there. Um, it might have been younger. 
Not sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all very squishy. You know, as you get older, time gets more and more fluid. So. Well, you got to get rid of something for the new stuff coming <laughs> the new in. Stuff coming. Yeah, so I'm, just, I'm, I'm on dregs on that stuff. Um, and then I got the, um, when I was 13, we, I went to boarding school in North Wales in uh, a little town called Llandudno. Um, she said what? Yeah, she said what? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we were right on the edge of um, it's an it's an old Victorian uh, beach town. So there's this big promenade and a pier and all the rest. Of it. Oh, classic, very cool. Yeah, it's a pretty nice place. But uh, where the school was was up on the hill, um, kind of off from the bay. So it's probably I don't know a few miles, like three or four miles to walk down to the bay itself, and. Um, the school, the original house of the school, is a, I think it was a 10th century manor house. So we had battlements with cannons on and a moat. <laughs> and, you know, you start telling these yarns, right? And it's just like, this is, this is nonsense. I'm torn between the utter stereotype and what an amazing place to be a curious young man. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, up on that hillside, so the, there was uh, woods around us. And I know this is like way more complicated than the question that you asked me, but this is life, right? Um, so People have got a lot of hand sanding to do. We, we need to fill some time anyway. So uh, the backside of the school, we were kind of on this hillside. So we had the bathments on the on the low side of the property. And, um, and then the rugby fields were down there. I actually used to take my longbow and shoot off the bathments with flaming arrows. That's another side. As one does. As one does. Uh, but out in the woods, uh, the old woods are overgrown um, yew trees, which used to be a maze. So you'd be out oh. in the woods, and there's like these lines of yew trees, and then you'll suddenly come across a statue of, you know, Zeus or something, you know, gigantic lead statue. <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah. Man, t- that's got to be an awesome place for a kid to explore, though. I mean, that's... It, it was perfect. And, it, you know, it's a school specifically designed for dyslexics. So 80% of the population were dyslexic. So everything was backwards. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> nobody was on time for anything. You know, we were all, every class was a remedial class. It was great. You know, fortunately, I'm left-handed. So when I make my knives backwards, right-handed people can use them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I got to um, – study there and it, it was it was kind of an interesting way that they uh, approached education because they understood that we were all super hyperactive you know before we had words like adhd and blah 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 and whatever which i actually think is a benefit for the human rather than a, a, a deduction from the human but um in order to keep us kind of used up of energy they um they gave us sports every single day so from four o'clock until six six o'clock, we played rugby, we yeah. played soccer, we you, know football. You got to get the piss and vinegar out. Yeah, we, we had cricket. Um, you know, we also we had shooting, um, we had archery, we had falconry, we had climbing, <sighs> we had caving. Sailing. I, I hate the American education. <laughs> I mean, being yeah. functionally illiterate, I can get past. <laughs> Not having shooting and falconry at my school, I, right? I, I'm ready to tear those, the American system down. Those are natural born rights. Yes, come on now. <laughs> I, I think that's in the 28th uh, Amendment to the Constitution. If it isn't, it should be. From mm. um, but you know, because of that, 
uh, I had already been doing a lot of stuff with my old man up until then, but because of that, you know, we had a good metal shop, we had a good wood shop, we had, you know, automotive repair shop, you know, all these kinds of things. So they were giving us a really diverse... Well, because dyslexics work with their hands. I mean, that's... Exactly. We're three-dimensional. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so... That's brilliant. Uh, yeah. And that's kind of like where my education went horribly awry and uh, wound up getting into blacksmithing. Um, which we are going to get into. Yeah. But... Uh, so was that one of the classes that you had there, or... So, so my school. I, I'm sorry, Kyle. Have you not seen the show notes? Like, we're, we're going to get into that, man. Yeah. If I spent five minutes making show notes, are you go, you going to waste my time? Yeah. Go ahead, uh, Mark. I'm just going to so, the stones. Um, so we had a um, what they called three dimensional art. So uh, it, it was basically CDT, which is craft design and technology. But it's like it's 3D art slash woodworking slash you know what whatever so you know they tried to teach us autocad i sucked a bit but i did i did eight hours of hand drafting a week in classes you know so and then in our so we had the wood workshop and then we had the metal workshop and in the metal workshop you know we had all the classic like press breaks all that kind of thing we then had machine tools so lathes and mills and did then, you have the teacher with three fingers on one hand <laughs> You know, actually, all our teachers had all their digits. Oh, it wasn't until I went to, uh, to my um, college stuff that I had that woodshop teacher who just had a claw. <laughs> <in it. laughs> it was such a mess. Uh, but um, in, the, um, in the metalworking area, there was a section that they called the spray area. And the spray area was actually a gas air flint chip forge which they'd kind of refab and put a, uh, a series of excuse me i'm belching um a series of kind of panels up in there so that the fumes would be taken up with flu um and then we had like a brazing area so like a nice brazing table with a flue over the top of it and all the rest of it and you know at that time a lot of people were getting more into the physical three-dimensional and product design style. So you, you'd make stuff out of MDF, sand it, spray it, and all the rest of it. Making patterns. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but I got really into the metalworking side, and it turns out that my woodshop teacher, Mr. Leonard, in his previous life before he became a teacher, was a farrier. So he's like, well, Mark, you know, there's like an anvil and a gigantic pexto stump with all the state tools and all the rest. I was like, oh, huh? You and know. if you like girls, girls ride horses. <laughs> oh, no, no. I learned that story a lot later on. Don't stay away from the horses. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he, he kind of got me started in the blacksmithing realm. You know, just a little bit of guidance. Yeah. Let me go down that rabbit hole. I was probably 13, 14 at that point. Nothing will tire a lad out like panging on steel. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, that's kind of how it happened and how it started to begin with. And then it just went mayhem from there. Acorn Oak kind of situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was the first knife you had growing up? Oh, so my dad gave, I was probably about five years old. He okay. gave me a, his old, Boy Scout knife, which is 
kind of reminiscent of like the K bar. Mm-hmm. So it had that big, heavy four in it. It had a clip buoy. It was like, like the case hunting yeah, knives. Yeah, le- kind of like that. Yeah, leather stacked handle with big metal top oh, on okay. the back side. And he had a little like matching... a Mark IV survival. Yes. You know, I'll shut up now and let you describe. Kind of like that ish. <laughs> Uh, and that's the only thing that I can think of it as being reminiscent to. I don't know what it was. And it probably came out of one of the Sheffield factories. It's probably like an IXL or something like that. Um, so he gave me that and this little leather handled, stack leather handled tomahawk. And I was always running around in the backyard chopping things. Like, the, like an East Wing when you say stack leather handle. Yeah, a like, bit like that. And, like you a know, really light whopper. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a boy's hat or yeah, a boy's hat. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So metal shaft on it, so you couldn't break it. Right, it's all integral. Challenge accepted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I still have a completely knack at those, and and he gave me the, the strict rule: you are not allowed to throw them. And that's really difficult now because I still, you, I still have my dad in the back. Don't throw the knife, and I really want to. You know, so I make spears and I make throwing knives and I make all kinds of things that we get break the slinging around but I really struggle with that <laughs> my dad was phenomenal I broke an old man I think yeah, I think it was even one of my grandfather's uh he was in a b29 and I think it was one of his old survival knives and all the leather had worn off and the balance was really great yeah and of course it was just a matter of time until I hit it flat um and I was absolutely distraught I mean I felt horrible that I had broken it and even worse about the beating that I knew I was about to get. And he was absolutely phenomenal. He just looked at me. He's like, uh, did you learn something? Okay. Yep. Uh, and that confused my little head. But yeah. to this day, I've, I've got the same thing. I've got a catch when I go to, oh, I'll break it. Oh no, I'm okay. <laughs> this one I made for throwing in. I want to get a, a, you know, big throwing area set up out here one day because it's something I've never done. I'm almost 50. I, you know, I don't throw knives. <laughs> you know, I asked KJ from Thunder Horse because, you know, she used to throw, trick throw knives. Yeah. And I, I want to figure it out. I was asking her about it. I'm like, how do you throw knives? And she said, well, you just look where you want it to go and you throw it. Throw it. Yeah. Like, well, okay, but like tip, hang on. She's like, look where you want it to go and throw it. Uh, it turns out that some people are natural naturals, yeah. and then there's me. That, yeah, yeah. Hey. I can get it to hit sideways every time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you throw it hard enough. Yeah, KJ <laughs> might have a little bit more uh, pedigree for doing that. Uh, fair point. Yep. Yeah. I think she did a throwing knife with K-Bar she or uh, she someplace. She did K-Bar about five years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Chef Ralph, who is he's one of the phenomenal guys that comes out of the river and cooks with us, um, had a set and he's the reason we have a throwing target down at the river. And it was hilarious when I introduced the two of them at, at blade show a couple of years ago, because he had watched all of her videos. He had her knives. Right. Um, and, uh, after they met and walked away, he's like, wow, Dan, you're not as much of a tool as I thought you were. <laughs> you actually know some people. Yeah. It's good to know people. Um, where'd you, let's see, I, I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves, but, uh, you know, um, I'm here to mess up your show notes. <laughs> well, if I could read them. Oh yeah. Uh, where'd you learn to make your first knife? So, um, or where did you make your first knife? So my dad, um, uh, and, and I blame my father 
for as we all do <laughs> in, in the nicest way but um for the path that i've took it's really it's kind of one of those things um he was fascinated as a young man in medieval history cowboy movies and old maps there's a lot of overlap actually yeah and, and, you know it kind of all makes sense but so he started collecting like back in the 60s he was collecting old knives that were out there in the kind of junk shops. You know, they, they call them thrift stores nowadays, right? Or actually, they're probably, no, antiques. Mm, yeah, so, no, no, it's antiques yeah, now. But it, it was junk shops. That's how we knew it was. So you could go buy, you know, a little, an old Sabatier knife for like 50 pence, you know, which is nothing. It's half a dollar. You know? Side note, now a chef would give one of his appendages for one of those. Yeah. I, I used to go out and I'd find them in the in like the Oxfam shop and I'd buy them and bring them home, rehab them and give them to my mom and she'd, she'd use them for cooking. But that's all by the side. So my dad started collecting knives. So when I was eight, um, we figured out that once upon a time there was this old ordinance that said that every male child from the age of eight onwards has to have a longbow and shoot archery every Sunday after church for an hour. So my dad found an old longbow, and we started shooting. Um, and then, you know, he, he'd made some knives, and that's very much in quotation. He made things of metal. Sharp on which, one side, handle on the other. Yeah, yeah, and very much kind of influenced by things like the Iron Mistress, and you know. That's, <laughs> so he's got this gigantic Bowie knife that was, you know, giant guppy looking thing. And we have, you know, Sheffield was just up the road, so we could go to the big Sheffield um, knife shows, and uh, you know, these are old cutlers, and there's, you know, there's a bunch of antique stuff, and you know, you, you'd find the occasional guy who actually would make knives for sale or they um they would take commission those kinds of things and i think the first knife that we designed together so we met this old boy uh, it was actually it was two brothers um and i want to say they were the middleton brothers r and r middleton and there was actually an interesting kind of sidebar to that is the there was an article written in one of the knife books about 10 years ago or knife magazines about R&R Middleton knives that were made and some special forces group had them and nobody knew who R&R Middleton was and I actually wrote a little note to the, I don't know what ever happened to it but it's like hey actually I yeah, I can tell you exactly people, yeah uh, so I kind of send them back to the old man um, so um, my dad designed dad and I designed a ski and do which was going to be used for fishing and we did a lot of trout fishing, so fly fishing. So my dad made his own fishing rods, and he, you know, he because he was in the plastics and polymers and resins department, um, that was what he did in uh, the Shell Chemicals. He would go and deal with companies who say made fishing rods or made oh no um, crossbows. He actually sold resin to Bear, who you know, you know, for the crossbows ah. and stuff. Really, blue? That's Devon. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, we're just going to have a little sidebar there of balloon barking. Uh, so, uh, we designed this knife, and we had Ron Middleton 
make this beautiful ah! do. I think Blue's calling BS. <laughs> Blue. Ah! Calm down. Okay, there we go. Uh, so, um, yeah, we had Ron Middle to make this blade, and then my dad managed to hustle up some staghorn. You know, we have uh, what we call roe deer, I think a red deer, mm-hmm. deer, something like that. So they have a good size uh, antler on them. They tend to be smaller, but have a huge rack, don't they? Yeah, they're a little bit bigger than the white tails. Yeah, um, so, and they have a really good, you know, good thick base on them. So they make a, a lovely skin do handle. Uh, so you know, we did the brass fittings and you know put this handle together, and we used it as, and we made a matching trout priest. So from the same piece of stag, so that we could you know whack our trout on the head and then use that for gutting. So great little knife. Um, and then the next one, we, we kind of did a skinnier version. Jessica came home. Uh, so we made a skinnier version, uh, which we made a pair of. And that was the thing. And we carried those and used those. And we used them as our archery knives and so on and so forth. Then my dad got the opportunity. And I know this is so much more complicated than simply just I went out there outside one day and whacked the thing with a hammer and made a knife, right? This is part of being the most interesting <laughs> man in the world. There are no short stories with my <laughs> There absolutely are. Yeah. Uh, so. So um, my dad, he was working in a certain section of, his business was shut and there was the American You're component and he came over to the U S and he would do like two stints a year where he'd be over here for a couple of years, uh, so a couple of years, a couple of months. And, um, he was down in Texas area and he's like hanging out with all these guys who are working on the residence reactors and they have these big cooling ponds and in the cooling ponds, you know, these guys, they had, like, they'd find alligator and put the alligator in the cooling ponds <laughs> to kind of grow them up. And they were, like, old, either, like, um, they were either Texas dudes or they were, like, Louisiana dudes. So he's like, I don't even know what to put. Everybody carried these whopping. I don't know what English or what language you're speaking, but it ain't English. <laughs> so um, he basically he's like, where do you get your knives from? And they're all like, oh. You got to come and meet Ed Further, who is the owner of Texas Knife Supply. So he got wow. taken over to Texas Knife Supply. This is back in '83, somewhere around there. Um, somewhere eight, somewhere around that. And um, the blade books were out. So he got Ed's catalog, which you know it's all the same that Jantz and everybody has, right? Everyone has the same knife now. But he knew Ed, and um, he's like, okay, so what hardware do I need, blah, blah. So he's got a bunch of blanks. He's got a bunch of different handle materials, you know, bits of samba stag. he got wood pack, got all this kind of stuff. he got a whole uh, um, black buffalo. Uh, he got Corby bolts. he got, you know, everything and anything you can imagine. One of each. Yeah, or a couple of each, you know. <laughs> and, uh, I like your dad. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he came back with maybe half a dozen knife blanks. So... That was good, and um, he. We then basically spent the next year making and assembling these knives in our spare time, which was a whole lot of fun. You know, we'd modify them a little bit. We'd like 
learn how to detemper the spine a little bit so you could do file work and jimping and all these kinds of things. We just had a blast with it. And so I was like eight, nine, ten, somewhere in that ballpark doing this kind of craziness. That early impressionable. Yeah. And, and, you know, of course, then I'm doing the archery at the same time. And, you know, we're trying to figure out what's the best knife for when you get an arrow stuck in a tree. Oh, I didn't because even think about that. Yeah. That's an issue, right? Um, and then at school, I then started tinkering in the forge with mashing bits of steel. And I didn't know anything about anything. And Mr. Leonard would kind of give me a little guidance here and there to do stuff. And, you know, I started getting old files and, you know, all the, all the standard stuff, you know, bits of spring steel, mucking around with that, making shapes and then trying to figure out how to heat treat. So that was kind of the start. Wow. So really mayhemic and really not much guidance, but I'd already, you know, by the time I was 11, 12, I was doing file work. You know, my dad brought back the 2000, oh, sorry, the 83 blade book and, you know, reading about Bill Moran and, you know, all these kinds of things. And, you know, Skagel, you know, these these are people that are the foundation of what is now the American yeah. knife industry. But, you know, then you have a company that's making, say, a Skagel-looking knife, but nobody knows who Skagel is anymore. Like, oh, that's, that's our granddaddy of granddaddies. <laughs> you know? Anyway, so um, my education in it was really random because you're looking at, over here, you've got your Sheffield School, where it's all... Wilkinson Sword and IXL and, you know, all those kinds of companies making these classic Bowie knives or they're making kitchen knives and so on and so on and so on, so on right? Very so, standard, very regimented. Yep. And one dude's forging out the same knife all day, every day for 50 years, which is <clears throat> insane. Yeah, uh, that would drive me nuts. Yeah. But that's the industrial north. Yeah. You know, you go and work in a in a steel mill or you go and work in a, a manufacturing it's like being up in Chicago or something yeah. like that. Same kind of thing. Just different different world, you know? So So really we now get to the most important question. Probably the one question that everybody actually tunes into this show. I don't even know why we put it so early in the show. We should put it later in the show. Yeah. yeah. And I may have stacked the deck a little bit. Uh-huh. Because we have had a long months of unbroken, saccharine, sweet, wholesome stories. I mean, Team Kyle is so overweighted and bloated at this point. It was it was time for me to to bring you in and ask the most important question: mm-hmm. How'd you meet your wife? Oh, <laughs> so. Um- and this is going to be even longer than the rest of it. So um, I'm in school. I kind of stopped at school. College school. No, school school. Oh, school school. Still, okay. still, still at Hogwarts, right? Uh, <laughs> oh, and by the way, we did have the minstrel hall. We had a priest hall where priests would hide. Um, there was a... Um, uh, a you can't see it, everybody, yeah. but... He's holding his pinky up as he says this. (laughs) So so there's a balcony, which was the um, portrait gallery. And there are all like these old portraits of the lords of 
that manor house before it became a school. So anyway, that's that's where I'm at. And it, it, you know, it's it's crazy to think that they turned that into a school. But by the by, by, and let you in. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I realised I was not going to be a research chemist like my parents. My sister, very highly intellectual, and she's like going down the um, the kind of chemistry, biology. She actually became a professor of dentistry. And uh, so I they realized... have those in England? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't talk about the South. Go <laughs> like horses. Anyway, uh, so Mr. Leonard put me up for like a scholarship program, which I could then use to go and find some form of like education outside. So, you know, the idea is that they're trying to set every child up so that when they exit, you're going to be a non-conformist child either way because you're dyslexic and your brain's fooey and you do not think inside the what box. Yeah. You, know, the, you know, the box is an abstract. Uh, the, all the cookie cutters. The dodectrahedron? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, universe. So um, when my dad, with work, we moved down to London, kind of in my latter years of uh, being at school, so I was probably yeah, 15, 16, somewhere around about there. And um, we moved down to uh, a place called uh, Oxshop, which is um, close to, if anyone knows Britain, it's close to Leatherhead and Chesington World of Adventure, which is basically like Six Flags, right? Okay. Uh, so not far off. And, you know, I'm doing my archery in uh, the 100 Acre Woods uh, with a company of 60 archery. And, you know, big shout out to those folks. They were awesome. Um, and uh, because of them, I got into leatherworking. I got into fletching. I got into bow making. You know, just all kinds of crazy stuff. But long and short of it, in Leatherhead, is a blacksmith shop called um, Quinnell's Fire and Iron Gallery. So uh, Dick Quinnell is, I think he's like a third generation blacksmith. So I got to use this credit essentially to go. Scholarship. Yeah, to go and study there. And I got to study with this awesome shop who's, you know, the guys in the shop studied under Quinnell's father mm. and the other old boys in the shop so I've, i can't remember all of their names but mr lamb um and it, you've got to remember in british tradition you always refer to them as mr and then that's their yeah. name um and even when yeah. when i went to hereford i had to do that even more so but we used to do that here back when we had some manners <laughs> in class <laughs> yeah. so um mr uh, mr lamb kind of took me under his wing and kind of got me into that smithing world and then in order for me to go forwards, um, you know, I've got to just make tons and tons of bits with them. And they were building you know, fabulous gates and railings. And, you know, my, Doing a lot of artistic work. Artistic in the artistic. kind of functional, like when you're doing elaborate gates and railings with like, you know, beautiful scroll work and picket work. And, you know, you've got one guy whose job, was just to do the machining, and he only had one eye, so he didn't have a problem with parallax, <laughs> right? You know, you, like you start getting into this world of these really weird characters, but dudes who have been doing a trade since they were kids, you know, 11, 12, 13, yeah. and I was with them in their 50s, 60s, 70s. So 
just like the true masters. Of, yeah, they, and they were masters in the British tradition. They had sat for their mastership, right? And they were graded as a, you know, gold, silver, or bronze master blacksmith. Again, no knife making, right? But from them, I started to learn how to do heat treating in the fire. So, and that's how I always approached it. I always approached it of, you know, this is how you heat treat. And shape is a shape. Shape is a shape, yeah. You're making a chisel and blah, blah, blah. So, got to there. And then in order to go into, um, to go to Hereford, which is a, a smithing school, basically the only smithing school in, in Britain, I had to do one year of art foundation, right? So it teaches you how to draw and blah, blah, blah. And uh, anyway, went to, went to Chelsea, studied at uh, Chelsea, managed to get also over to um, St. Martin's, and did silversmithing over there. Oh, cool. So that was kind of cool. And, and St. Martin's really known for its, its kind of like fine art and, and silversmithing, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I studied, studied there as well. Uh, and at the same time, whilst I was in that London area, the, the interesting thing with the London schools, if you're taking a course in one of the London schools, you can take another class anywhere else for like five quid. So... I wound up doing more silver. That's like $25 in freedom money. <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably, <laughs> yeah, maybe like 10 bucks, somewhere around there. Um, so I wound up, wound up taking leather classes at Sutton. Um, and it was like Sutton College. It was just like a little funny little art college that does crafts and trades and stuff. So, so I did leather work and I did more silver smithing up there. Um, and that was you know, really good foundation, got to do lost wax casting, got to do fabrication. So I mean, these are all things that I'd already been doing uh, from when I was at St. David's at school. And then, long story short, got out to Hereford, got a job down in um, the uh, home county. So I was, uh, where was I? I was in Reading, I think it was, a little place called Cranbrook. And I was working with a smith down there. And the church that my folks went to, well, this is kind of like, really? Oh, say, long I have story. confidence that it's going to come back around. Some of the listeners, you, yeah. you got to have faith in your old Uncle Dan. I've never picked a bum guest. Just This is going to come back around, and it's going to be a shining moment. So then I, um, whilst we were there, um, there was a, the, Preacher, so, so uh, what do we call it? Um, forget these words. Uh, so the minister from the church that we went to as a family was on sabbatical in Africa. And they're up like Kilimanjaro or something, right? And um, in a bunkhouse. And one of the other guys that's there is a Kenyan minister. Right? And they started nattering. They're like, hey, come on over. Come on, you know meet our community so pastor james wound up coming over to britain and you know they're doing like past the pastor as it were <laughs> between the different homes because otherwise it's a heavy burden on yeah. to feed people so you know we were, i was home from uh from hereford at that time it's like christmas time and he's asking me oh what are you doing and i'm like oh i'm doing blacksmithing and uh like, oh, interesting so what kind of things are you doing? And I kind of explained, you know, everything from like architectural smithing and tool smithing and all these kinds of things. 
And uh, he's like, that might be a useful skill set in my community. It's like, okay, cool. So um, I went off working, you know, finished at Hereford, went off to Cranbrook, and uh, I'm there. And one day I got a letter, or my folks got a letter, uh, at the house, and it says, hey, I think you probably have finished your blacksmithing training by now. Are you interested in coming over and seeing if your skill sets are viable? Yeah. So I was like, okay, why not? Yeah, hinge is a hinge, a door latch is a door yeah, latch. Yeah, uh, you know, and a chisel is a chisel and so on and so forth. And um, I was 20. And I was like, why not? You know? <laughs> Just out of curiosity, were you wearing the kilt at 20? No, no, no. Okay. I didn't. So I didn't start wearing the kilt. You knew me in pants, right? No, you had... Uh, I should have been still in pants. Maybe, you know, I, I really... Yeah, I, never, I, I never made it past your eyes. Yeah. I gotta be honest. <laughs> well uh, I only started wearing the kilt after I herniated my ankle. Okay. Um, that was at the goat farm. So okay. I, and I think time... Uh, 2014, I think that was. Yeah. So it's been about mm-hmm. 10 years, give or take. Yeah. Uh, but, you are around. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway. We've digressed. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, got this opportunity and wound up uh, being in Kenya for four years and, uh, you know, sharing my knowledge a little bit. And you were teaching smithing in Kenya. Teaching smithing in Kenya and, you know, built out a workshop and uh, teaching the local lads how to make things with hammers and, uh, you know, living a really very simple life. I bathed in the river and walked a mile to draw water from a from a spring kind of thing. Uh, and we built the workshop, um, felled, felled some trees, had them drug with bulls, hewed them, made an ad, hewed them into timbers, built a timber frame workshop with a living space above it. <laughs> yeah, so when you say you built a shop, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I made the tools to fell the tree, to process the tree, to build the shop, to make more tools. Yeah. Because that's what a blacksmith is, right? Yeah, and, no, it's... and that's kind of it's an interesting thing because in Europe, right, as a smith, you go and you buy your tools and you buy your anvil and you set up and you're you know, you kind of apprentice in or you journeyman in and eventually you go off and you start your own shop, right? Well, I literally got the opportunity to build it from scratch, which is really intense, uh, but also I was in my 20s, so who cares? What else were you going to do? Yeah, right. Uh, so got to live a really peculiar life. And in so doing, I had to go up to Nairobi um, fairly often to, you know, make sure that my uh, alien certificate was <laughs> up to date and stuff like that. And um, then when I'd go up to Nairobi, one of the other pastors from that church would host me up there and they were in like a little neighborhood area and uh they passed the they passed the brit <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of yeah uh but you know there were a bunch of kids all about the same age you know like looking from you know, i was 20 20 21 so somewhere around there at that time and uh, basically you know all the kids within the neighborhood like 18 to 20 something mm-hmm. They all hung around and, you know, so whenever I was down in town, they, you know, would all hang out and talk nonsense. And uh, anyway, I met, 
well, most of the folks in the neighborhood. And uh, I met who now is my wife, Esther, and she was dating someone at the time. And we were just really good friends and hung out. And then, you know, it's funny. One day you look at somebody and they make a lump in your chest. <laughs> you know, chest, that's chest, right. Chest, yeah. And you're like, oh. Oops, you know, and these long, you know, times when I'd be up there and just nattering, telling yarns and, you know, dreaming of the future and what you'll do in life and so forth. And next thing you know, I've got a girlfriend <laughs> that I saw twice a year. So, Those are some of the best ones. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and we, it really galvanized the time that I got malaria and she took care of me and took me to her mother's home and her mother's a, a nurse practitioner so uh, that kind of nurse me that's a strong woman <laughs> yeah oh she's she's an amazing human being her mom is i love her to death yeah. well and on that um that we, sort of sounded pretty uh wholesome to me oh, Dan. hold on hold on <laughs> marcus skipped something that i'm going to up and we'll see if he wants it uh edited out or not i remember a story about having to break the ice with a dagger oh yeah <laughs> so uh, so the uh, the culture that esther is from she is maasai and meru right so maasai people everyone knows the maasai big tall individuals with you know red, red and black tartan and yeah jump for days and who are pastoralists and carry a spear so the other side of it is meru which is they're, they're a sister tribe more or less um, and you'll see a lot of intermarrying between the two. But the thing about the Meru, she comes from a particular group called the Tiganese, or from Tigania. And um, that region especially is known for if you're walking down the street and you're Meru, and you turn to another Meru over on the other side of the street, and somebody that you've got beef with is walking the other way, and you're just like, cut him. They'll cut them. They don't ask why. They just accept that you are my tribe's person. You told me to cut them. I'm going to cut them. And it's like, how badly do you want to be cut? You know, do you like a good shanky and a slashing with a machete or just like a little scratch? Well, uh, eventually they'll tell you why you did it, but there was clearly a good reason. It doesn't matter. Oh, okay. You know, in, in oh, it culture, goes deeper than that. It literally doesn't matter. Okay. It's like, okay, cool. Shunk, shank, move on. That's prison yard stuff. Uh, but, and, and they're actually... <laughs> The, the Merus are known for growing desert, or as most people know, it's cats. Right? Uh, so, you know, Sudanese and all those guys. So, you know, you'll find uh, little shops and they've got banana leaves hanging up, and that's how you know that you can go buy your cut. Hmm. So, or feather, Good I'm to saying. know. Yeah, so if you're ever wandering around in East Africa, you see banana leaves hanging over somebody's door on like a little bit of fishing line. Yeah. That's where you can get the good stuff. Um, so... <laughs> With this knowledge, I knew I was going to be going back to Nairobi and uh, I'd been playing around with making balasong. And uh, I was like, I'm going to make Esther a balasong. And uh, you know, kind of real traditional in many ways because the blade was forged and it was all kind of claimed materials that I found and um, raised on brass uh, backers and all these kinds of things. And I then gave it to her in front of her grandmother. So Esther's father died just before I got to meet her. Um, 
So the grandmother is that bloodline. And you have big stretched out earlobes, all the rest of it, the classic. And uh, a hand with a knife. And she's, the grandmother's like, yes, this one. Because, <laughs> you know, Esther's the last born of five. So, you know, she's the baby. She got away with so much more than all the other sisters. Well, like dating the six foot two white guy. Yeah. <laughs> with a whole bunch of long hair and, and multiple fastenings. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah, it, you know, me giving the knife kind of really cemented um, the relationship within the family. And, you know, uh, me and grandma used to talk. She didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any of, her, of the Meru. But we communicated, and eventually we started to learn how to actually communicate linguistically, and you know, it's kind of funny. But yeah, that's that was yeah. a yarn. Yeah, I'm claiming it as mine because it required a knife yep. to uh, a knife to win over the grandmother, the matriarch of the family, to <laughs> yeah. be allowed in. Yeah, yeah. So, but he didn't. He didn't stab anybody with it. No, that no, you no. know about that's, that's for her that's for, not for me to be doing this stuff yep. Meru's that's, oh. all, that's all their business uh, I um. don't know about that knife that might, knife might be stuck in a dead body somewhere as far as I'm concerned yeah but I mean <laughs> at least you knew if they stabbed you they were going to use a good knife and that was my argument you know if, if somebody how offensive is it as a knife maker or as a blacksmith or bladesmith that you get cut with like a Stanley box opener yeah. Or a screwdriver. A screwdriver, come on. Yeah. Yeah, I was so annoyed. Yeah, if if Esther or somebody in her family was going to cut you, at least yeah. now you could be assured that it was a quality blade. Yeah, she keeps the machete on her side of the bed, I'm sure, just in case I step out of line. You know, and that probably frightens me more than a pistol. Let me tell you something. Um, having been in situations where somebody pulls a knife on me, yeah, no, just don't. <laughs> you, you made so many bad life choices to get to that point. Yeah. yeah it's like traveling in the frontier in South America. Yeah. Uh, once a blade comes out, you're done. Yeah. Like, just don't bother. Yeah, it, that's a bad idea. What What is our next question, Dan? Oh, I, I'm glad you ask. <laughs> um, now, we're going to see if we can answer this one in 45 minutes or less. <laughs> Um, and I'm sorry I, that my life is so weird. Oh, you are golden. You know, it, if we have a little extra time, we're going to have to circle back around to accidentally killing a green mamba, uh, having to fight a cobra for your bar of soap. I mean, wasn't that wasn't that allegedly killing? No, a green no, no. Mamba? Both of these were were legitimate. Well, I mean, I, like, is that? Is that are you supposed to put the allegedly in front of that so he doesn't oh, the statue oh, of? Limitations? Yeah, no, I don't think there's any illegality. In, uh... No, it, I mean, when you find a green mamba in your water pot and you think it's a grass snake, so you chop its head off, that's mm. normal behavior, right? Well, I mean, it was pre-tea. You, you hadn't yeah, had your morning yeah. tea yeah, yet. That and... is absolutely legit. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, we've teased it a little bit. Let's, <laughs> let, we'll touch on this one because it is, I mean. Uh, so, you know, you know, living, I was in a really rural part of, kind of out in the western province and um, my workshop was a timber frame workshop with mud walls and on the wall of the workshop we had the water pot and the water pot was strictly spring water so it's this big clay pot i made a, a forged iron kind of carrier for it and it was like a big earthen yeah, well big pot. round 
uh, uh, yeah, earthenware pot with like a lip on the top of it. So in order to stop dust and stuff going into it, and you, you don't want to contaminate your drinking water, obviously. So these um, clay pots, they sweat. So they keep the water coolish. Cool. By, by relative yeah, standards. Very relative. And, which is really weird because when I went back to Britain, uh, water out of the tap, especially in the wintertime, was so cold it made my teeth hurt. Hmm. Uh, but um, by the by, so I had like a tin plate, and then on top of that, I have a tin mug. Uh, anyway, I'm upstairs, and uh, I have this little kind of attic space that I built in in the house and or in the workshop. And I came down the stairs, down the ladder, and uh, I'm making my tea in the morning. And uh, I no, I think I was brushing my teeth. What I was doing. Clearly, like, fully awake. Yeah, yeah, fully, completely fully awake. Yeah. So I come down and it's like start of the day, you know, probably sunrise six-ish somewhere around about there. And uh, I go over to the water pot and you know lift the doily and it's a weighted doily. It has beads around the outside of it, so it kind of hangs straight. And anybody who's been in Africa knows probably pretty much what I'm talking about. It, it just kind of keeps it tight yep. so that things shouldn't get inside, like flies and stuff like that. So lift off the doily, get my mug, lift off the plate, go to dip in, and there's a weird noise. There's like a, a splashing noise in, in my iPod. What the heck is that? And I'm like, yeah, I don't have a flashlight. I did everything by, um, by paraffin lamp. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have electricity. Like uh, a Coleman oil or a kerosene lamp. Yeah, kerosene lamp. Yeah, yeah. So it's classic like that Coleman lamp, the whipped Coleman lamp we used all the time and i got fancy later on i got a pump up pressure lamp with a little globe on it for the really bright light uh, so i was like oh, is that? there's something in my pot there's something in my pot why is there something in my pot so kind of put everything down on the work the workbench slash dining room table that was in in the middle of the workshop put everything down and i'm like oh. go over to the tong rack grab a pair of tongs kind of grab around in the bottom of the pot and eventually get something. I'm like, huh, we're good. I got I it. what it is, but I got it. And I lift it up and I kind of got it pretty close to the head somehow or other. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Which we know because you're here. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's a snake. Great. I just kind of walk out. And as I'm walking out, I grab my machete from the side, side of the door, go out through the door, pop it on a log, chop its head off and just kind of sling it out there. And go back to making in like a little door yard. Yeah, there's like a little courtyard, and there's a little bit of a, a hole there where they'd mined clay to build some of the surrounding buildings. Um, and I just kind of swung it out, didn't even think about it. And one of my neighbors, Paul, comes by and he's like, he's, you know, he, come, he, he often come by and like snag a cup of tea or something like that. And he comes by and he's like, uh, what, what, what's going on with that snake? I'm like, oh, I found it in my water pot, Paul. I'm, I'm just, it, it's not a, it, what, this morning's not going well. Like, I found a downstairs, now I've got to empty out my water pot, wash my water pot, I might have peed in there, I don't even know. I've got to walk an extra journey to go get water to refill my whole pot. And, you know, it's like, that's an extra five gallons of water that I'm going to have to get. That's a pain, you know? So I was a, a little disgruntled about it, and he kind of looks over and he goes, you know what kind of snake that is? Like, it's a grass snake, right? It's just green. It's a grass snake. And he goes, no, that, that's a green member. At which point I had 
some kind of feelings about the experience. Suddenly like your day was a whole lot better. Yeah, I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. It's funny. Yeah. But, you know, naivety is beautiful because, you know, um, I have so many silly yarns like this. What, I, what I'm hearing is don't mess with an Englishman before he's had his morning tea. <laughs> yeah, <That's>... yeah <laughs> basically, I did not have time to process what was going on. So it's just, uh, likewise, we used to, um, we used to go across, uh, me and a couple of the lads in the, in the, na- or in the village, we would, uh, I bathed in the river. Okay, and um, everyone's always like, oh, but what about the crocodiles? And down the river was the waterfall, which uh, had uh, allegedly had a giant rooster that lived behind the waterfall and protected upstream from crocodiles, ah. you know, as you do. Yeah, uh, that's why you keep a yeah, giant rooster around. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> so this mythical, I, I believe the place was called Ndanu Falls. That's somewhere in my memory. I think that's the right word for it. Um, so we used to swim across, oh, we used to bathe in the river, but then we'd swim across the river because the main town was on the other side. I was in Ulumbi and over there was Yala, right? So uh, Yala was like your main town. You could go get your meat and all that kind of stuff. Well, about once every couple of months, Coca-Cola would send around a movie truck, right? So they'd pop up this the big, big screen, flat yeah, truck yeah, with a screen. screen on it. And, you know, Coca-Cola signs everywhere and everybody get a free movie. And it's always an action movie. So it'd be like a Chuck Norris movie or, a, you know, a Rambo or you know, a Stallone movie or something like that. But they edited, edited out all the, what they considered unessential dialogue. <laughs> so somebody walks into a room, like, hey, how are you doing? The next thing they're being thrown out the window, and you're like, I don't know what happened. Yay, drink another Coca-Cola. Uh, so, let's say for a Rambo movie, that leaves you, what, like eight words of dialogue? Yeah, I mean, you're looking at, you know, maybe 30 minutes of action with like 10 words thrown in there. So, <laughs> anyway, so it's kind of one of those things. We were in the village. There was nothing else going on. Uh-huh. So um, we got back to the edge of the river. And at that time, it was kind of, it was during the rainy season. And it was dark. There was a high moon, a big bright moon. And... Um, I think there was four of us about to cross the river. Two of them were like, I don't know, I don't feel right about it today. I'm "I'm not walking all the way around. The walk around, because we have to go all the way down to the market and then cross the bridge and then walk all the way up. It was about a five-mile walk around. Mm. And, you know, it's nightfall. I I was like, no, I'm swimming. I don't care. So I take off all my clothes, bundle them up in my hand. That's how you swim, right? And you swim across one-handed holding your clothes and your groceries and all the rest of it. And then when you get to the other side, you dump everything on bank and you push yourself up on the bank. As I get to the other side, I stick my stuff on the bank and I go to swing my feet up. And it's pretty deep. You can't, at this time of the season, you couldn't touch the bottom of the river that easily. And you'd have to go upstream so that you floated down because mm. the flow. Um, Anyway, I went to put my feet down. I've got my hands on, and I kind of took my legs up. I'm trying to look for something in the bank. And as I go to put my feet down, I put my feet on something. I don't know what it is. Kind of soft, but firm. Kind of cold, but not really cold. And, And then the ground comes up as I eject myself. (laughs) Crab, crab on my belly, you know, feet up, hands up. I'm like, what the heck was that? And uh, 
anyway, I didn't think too much about it for a really long time. And I was telling that yarn to somebody one day, a, a Kenyan guy. And he's like, did you have hippos up there? Oh, shite. Yeah. So I may or may not have had a hippo elevation out of water. So, yeah. <laughs> If I were in the water with hippos, I would be elevated too. I'm yeah. right up on the surface. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They say that those have killed like more humans than most other animals. Oh, yeah. And they're fast. You know, people don't realize that on the land, they do like 35 miles an hour. Well, and they're hyper territorial, aren't they? Terrible eyesight. So, and they will just charge and kill whatever. Yeah, if, it, if they can't smush you, what looks like teeth when you realize dimension, that's like a six-foot tusk or a six-inch well, tusk. The, yeah, the, the tooth on them is like six to eight inches and about the same around as a beer bottle. So, you know, you, you get punctured with that. Yeah. <laughs> They're not particularly sharp teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. So, oh... Uh, where we've we going with this yeah, no, we've touched on it a little bit. I mean, uh, we, we've talked about your education a little bit, but to kind of bring it back around to the, the maker side, what I guess you could argue some nature nurture, but what made you, what led you to become a maker? I mean, was it the... Uh, so uh, my whole family, so my folks come from the north of Britain, right? So my grandfather on my mother's side, so... Mr. Johnston, Joe Johnston, he, um, he was a cabinet maker. So as a kid, you know, my holidays were longer than my parents got vacation. So I got shipped off to grandma or grandfather. Um, and my grandmother died when I was young on my mother's side, and my grandfather died when I was young on my father's side. So on one side, I've got this, you know, this old Scots bloodline, um, Actually, he was born in Scotland, uh, old cabinet maker who, after his wife died, started getting into art and started a self-help art group at his local church. So they had like a little church hall. And on a Thursday, he would be down there and everyone gets together and they did everything from, you know, pastels to watercolors and oil painting. So his house was full when he died. His house, every wall in his house, every inch of it was covered in paintings and pastels and chalks and you know everything and anything. And then it was about six paintings deep at floor level. Wow. Just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And he made all his own picture frames, which is cabinet maker, and you know, that was easy enough. And then so between doing that and then um hanging out in his woodshed and doing wood turning and joinery and all that kind of stuff, what we did. Mm. And then my grandmother on the other side is like this little red-haired, fiery Irish lass. Um, she's in, in Wigan, uh, so we have that nice, thick Wigan Yorkshire accent. She's like, all right, it's our kid. Anyway, so um, she was like a lightning bolt of control. You know, she raised two young men, so and managed to get my father and his brother to living uh, but um you know she she made stuff and did stuff and you know her husband my grandfather hopper um he was a machinist 
but like the old school machinist where it's like machinist engineer. So, you know, so I grew up around people that did stuff. I had great aunts who did leather work. So when we wanted to get into leather work, it's like, oh, you know, here's kind of the start of it. And your family, so your parents were kind of the outlier being chemists that the majority of your yeah. family were makers. But you got to remember that my folks came into being chemists the old school way, so the blue collar way. My dad was a lab boy, right? <laughs> and it just so happened, and my mom was the same kind of thing. She worked at a, a, a rubber plant doing um, chemist work on rubber. My dad was a lab boy in a research plant for Shell Chemicals doing you know, plastics, polymers, resins, all that kind of stuff. So the stuff that they were developing in the 60s was the stuff that later on in life he was selling <laughs> as what we would call nowadays a SME, right? A subject matter expert. Oh, okay. Because he literally did the research that made the thing do, right? <laughs> or he was part of that team. So, you know, even though they were, you know, research chemists, yeah. truly they came up the blue collar way and kind of hands on. So my dad, you know, he, big into fishing and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, if he wanted a fishing rod, he didn't have a lot of money. So he would have a natter with the po folks that he sold resin to who made rod blanks and he would buy the rod blank. So for a very nice carp fishing rod or fly fishing rod or something like that. And then he'd get his own rings and I learned how to whip rings and varnish fishing rods and all this kind of stuff. My mum was really into uh, sewing and doing um like needlepoint type stuff she when i was like 10 she had me doing um needlepoint work so i learned how to sew i learned how to embroider i learned how to knit i learned how to make fishing rods and bows and arrows and I, my dad was like hey how do you feel about having to go at sailing so he found a old little sailing dinghy and uh, we refurbished it so learned how to do that and then we started saying because of that and so i just did stuff i i wasn't like my sister who would sit and read i mean, I mean my sister still is very handy she you know she still sewed and knitted and you know all this kind of stuff but i was far more encapsulated in the making anyway yeah um so just made sense trying to get me into sitting in an office i'd have murdered everybody I'd have been that statistic. So. Uh, pretty equal parts nature and nurture. I mean, yeah. you came from a maker family, and I mean, we certainly has been my experience. Dyslexics are we're just predisposed to making stuff. Yeah, we we live in a three dimensional world. Yeah, uh, you know, my, my folks talk about when I was a kid, the uh, next door neighbor um, used to call me Boofia, which is like little rascal in Dutch. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> You know, if I was quiet, they had to check what I was pulling apart. Yeah. Somehow or other, I'd rustled up a screwdriver or a knife or something. I was taking something apart, you know, like unscrewing the knobs on the TV and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it, it was just, you know, that's like three years old. I mean, getting into it and making stuff and making a mess and pulling things apart and trying to put them together again and winding up with something completely different. So, you know, it, it's, it's what I've always been. I loved whittling. You know, like just sitting with a pocket knife and carving. She really enjoyed carving faces out of little bits of stick. And um, I was not sure where that was going. 
Um, and origami, loved origami, loved tying knots. Um, it could have gone so many different ways. Yeah, I'm one step away from serial killer. Uh, <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about your education. Um, that not even for for England, it wasn't necessarily a typical education because you went to the the boarding school yeah. that. Um, I didn't realize, but that's really impressive that they tried to find a pathway for you coming out. Yeah. Um, and you did, I guess what we would consider nowadays, at least a, a year of apprenticeship before you went to university. Yeah. So I got to spend time, spend time in shops doing and making, and that's, you know, that's important because if you don't spend that time, especially at that young age, making stuff you never will you know like so with quinell when i finished with quinell i then got a little setup at home and i was forging the whole time just making a mess and you know with the basic knowledge that they'd given me and they taught me how to make leaves and flowers and you know chisels and punches and all kinds of stuff like that scrolls and it, yeah if you're not doing it when you're young you won't it's not worth it. You yeah. won't put the time in. You'd yeah. rather go chase girls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, being in an old boys boarding school, the opportunity to chase girls was kind of limited a little bit. They're, they only let us out every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> and they bring us together with the other local girls boarding school. So it was right up my squiddly ball that week. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but because, you know, from that young age, just doing, and then, you know, with the influence of my dad doing, and you, you just start, there was knowledge already there, even before I started forging. And, and then when I started forging, I could bring the knowledge forwards. And then you get some tutelage from some wonderful guys like, you know, the Quinell folk. And that's, you know, another bunch of knowledge. And then off to, um, off to Chelsea. And then at Chelsea, I got to study you know, three-dimensional design. And, and it, it's what they call an art preparatory course. So they kind of give you a little dabble in everything. And what happened is I wound up in metal. I found myself back in metal, whether it was jewelry or so you were, sheet metal or whatever. You were taking metal-associated classes. You weren't necessarily taking a, a smithing not track. At, not at that point, no. Because the idea is with that, um, it's called an art foundation before you go off. And it's like from there... Everybody who's doing anything that's vaguely associated with art. So even if you're going to be an architect or you're going to be a, you know, a, a graphic designer, you, they put you into that mix to model you up, to make you experience things that you wouldn't do. Oh, okay. You know, and I'd already done a ton of drafting before. I'd been drafting since I was 13. So, you know, it, that would that side was easy and you know I, I enjoyed art and sculpture and that kind of thing but um and then finally coming out of chelsea and then going to hereford where it's now okay that's where you get the, the smithing specific. it's like your true this is old school we have a lineated program and this is what you do and you start off with points and then you make punches and you make chisels and you make tongs and you make you know, and it goes on, and then they start adding, you know, uh, okay, we're going to start doing some scrolling projects. We're going to do some forge welding projects. And, and it, it's kind of loose within parameters, right? So you get to design within the concept of process. 
And, you know, those things all started building that foundation that when I did finally go out and work in the marketplace, so when I was down in like Cranbrook and places like that, then you're taking your, what are essentially apprentice skill sets at that point. So between Quinnell and Hereford, I've learned all those apprentice skill sets. So you like, you look at that list and it's like, okay, yeah, I can weld, I can use gas torch, I can, you know, forge and fabricate, I can do joinery, I can forge weld, I can, you know, I can do scrolls, I can do leaves, like all the kind of basic structure and then hitting the floor in a production shop. Now, start really cutting your teeth because you're going to make a thing in a period of time that makes money, right? Otherwise, the boss man gets upset with you. Well, and that's so, um, and it sounds like rather than like taking Metallurgy 101, you learn this technique and part of this technique is learning how to anneal and then harden and temper. So that was the interesting thing with Hereford. We had evening classes as well. So they kept us busy from like eight in the morning till way into the night. Twelve hour days, they were ridiculous. But we had our short course classes as well. And one of them was metallurgy. Mm-hmm. So but here's the thing, you're looking at metallurgy as was early nineties. Uh, right. So in the early nineties, we had words for things, but you know, and the idea of how things work. And then, you know, you go study with Mr. Lloyd and it's like, now we're going to be doing, um, we're making punches and chisels with Mr. Lloyd. And he's talking about brain refining or what we would now classify as normalizing. They call it blue black hammer finishing. Right. So I just take my knowledge that I've had over here and transfer it across, across into a new shape which is now a knife, right? So I understand that as I am hot working, you know, you do your hot forging. And, you know, these, these are conversations. I see people forge at low temperature. I see people forge at high temperature. I was never told that I should forge at low temperature. I was told, forge it as hot as you can without it breaking, burning, and crumbling. And at the end of it, you do your blue-black finishing. And blue-black finishing is basically you've got your shape, you're doing your refining work on that final shape. So you're just gently tapping, gently tapping. You bring it up to like a mid orange, you hammer it down into the black range, you bring it up into mid orange, you hammer it down into black range. And what Mr. Lloyd told us was, look, what's actually happening is you heat it up and you hammer it. You're actually breaking down. The vibration of the hammering is breaking down that grain structure. Right? And now if you do a brake test on it, because we all we learned how to do break tests and how to analyze the final function. We didn't have rock roll hardness. We weren't using rock roll hardness. We would do we'd make a thing, and then you take a piece of sample bar and you heat it up and you forge it out into a long piece and then you quench it and then you do a differential temper range on it. So you've got a nice broad spectrum of colors and you see where it breaks. Hmm. So they'd actually make you do practical testing. So Okay, mystery meat. Here you yeah. go. If I gave you a bar of mystery meat and go, how do you heat treat it? It doesn't matter what it is, right? That could be, you know, dingleberry number 73. It just, it just doesn't matter. I don't need to know, but what I can tell is a little bit of spark test that gives me data. I then take a chunk of it and I heat it up and I quench it in water because 
there are water handling sticks. Yeah. Uh, typically, I'd go oil always first. But say we do water, you hit it once, and it goes, Pa-ching! okay. Even in the blue range, so we, we know we're getting like 600 degrees in the blue range, still shattering up there. So you don't take another piece of goes out the same, tree goes out the same, punch it in oil, and get your spectrum of colors, see where the break and failure point is. Okay. And that's how you build your, your heat treat data. Yeah. yeah, it's dope. That's all it is. You know, you're just building a, a catalog of data for what you have. Like we had weird steels like EN9. Nobody knows what EN9 is, but that's what we used a lot of the, a lot of the time for punches and chisels was EN9. That's Stephen Fowler with, I think it's W2. Yeah. He gets it to do shit it just shouldn't be able to yeah. do. And one time I was asking him about it, he's like, well, I think he bought six or 800 pounds mm-hmm. all from a single heat. Yeah. He's like, single source, single pull. I spent a couple of years dialing in the heat treat for this one batch. Yeah. The day I run out of this steel, yeah. I, I'll be back to doing what everybody else does yeah. until I buy a whole batch and dial it in. Was it like um, Ed Bauer, his, you know, the, the yeah. weird, yeah. Um, his people are still using, and Ed's like a million and a half years old, but they're using the same batch of bar that he bought at the beginning of his career. And it's 52100. That's, and that's why he can get 52100 to do ridiculous things. You know, over there in the ABS, you're talking about, oh, I need to get a 90-degree bend without it breaking. They do, like, five back and forth. Yeah. They have to cut, like, a thousand rope cuts. ABS, like, oh, yeah, two rope cuts would be good. Yeah. But the I- HUPK guys, dude, they are... I don't even know what they're getting that steel to. It's insane. But if I walked in there with a piece of 52100 that I I got from Niagara yesterday, it's a new game. Yeah, new game. It, will it behave close? Maybe. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Top of the heat, bottom of the heat. Um, you know, which which end of the, the, the margin was everything in? Yeah. Um, all right, what was the question? <laughs> yeah, no, you're good. Uh, there's, there's nuggets in there. We were talking a little bit about, I was easing in into your education, and the, I was going to talk a little bit about the differences in the, the U.S. and the English system, but yours was different even for the English system. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of, and the, even the English system's changing a lot now. So Hereford is now like the primary blacksmithing school in the British Isles. I believe it's probably the only one. Um, and... You know, it's more driven towards the art end of things now, which is, you know, it's good. Because yeah. we basically had our ag- agricultural smithing path. You have the um, the farrier path, and then you have the blacksmithing path. Well, we kind of did a little bit of dabbling in all of it at that time. And now the art section's like purely art, and the farrier section's purely farrier, and the ag section's purely ag. But, you know, at the same time, they had those project samples of um of you know items that you have to make as was back in the day yeah. in order to complete your kind of basic apprentice training so that you can go out into the world and when somebody hires you they know that you have an awesome foundation and you can do this stuff but so that was the game it's like tick the boxes have you done this for your apprenticeship have you done this for your apprenticeship and, and you came out being able to and, and we'll talk a little bit about how we got to the goat and hammer, but um, I mean, 
you took blacksmithing school, quote unquote, yeah. but came out being able to weld, being able yeah. to work with dissimilar metals. Yeah. So really it was almost a, a metal degree versus a, a smithing degree. Cause you could do well, art it, to industry. So yeah, yeah, really. It, and so you yet to do design. So we were doing, there were design quotas. We had paint finishing programs. We had to learn, they they had a body shop system where they they had kids that they were training just for body shop work. Yeah, that's metal I I got to learn how to lead seams, right? Old school leaded buff seams, how to lay down paint, how to do gold leafing, how to do shellacking. So really every aspect of metal work. Everything from milling to straightening a fender. Yeah, and we, we had a sheet metal class that we did. So we actually had to make like a toolbox with a rolled wire edge and we had to make a funnel and we had to lead solder it all together, all that kind of stuff. It was wild. I mean, the diversity of education that they were offering at that point, because it was, so the, the school was Hereford uh, College of Art and Design, right? It's up on the top of the hill in Hereford. And uh, within that, they had the Farrier School, they had the agricultural smithing school. They had the art school. They had a jewelry studio. They had paper. I mean, just all kinds of everything. And the thing was that because we were there doing blacksmithing, we spent eight hours a day in the forge. But then we had our evening classes. And then we had our Saturday classes as well. I mean, they, they gavaged the heck out of it. <laughs> and, you know, at the end of it, you're like, well, I learned how to make, I learned how to take, I learned how to stick, I learned how to gas, I learned how to braise, I learned how to solder, I learned how to do sheet metal work. Uh, learned, right? This learned. this explains more. I I had always assumed you had more OJT as you were, but you you came out with this foundation. Yeah, yeah, and I I had experience. So I've done welding before. I've done brazing before at uh, at St David's. Right, so I'd done stuff over there, but it was ad hoc. And, you know, I I took it wasn't a formal. Yeah, I took a sculpture class, and the teacher's like, "Hey, how?" He called everybody, Mister Gomesel, amazing human being. I don't know how he got to be a teacher. His his whole reason for being a teacher was so that he could have money to buy fishing permit to go fish at all the fancy trout lakes in Wales. So he called everybody Dave. <laughs> right? And when you got to like 16, he would call you chief. Right? And he, he called the headmaster. That's, that's way chief. easier than learning yeah. names. He's like, why would I bother? Are you only going to be here like a couple of classes a week or, you know, for a year? I don't need to know your name. You know, that's not the worst thing I've ever heard. Yeah, pretty, pretty funny. Um, but so with him, I learned how to do my first bit of welding and it's actually the first time I gave myself arc blindness. So actually I was building the first time. First time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you weld enough, you gonna arc give yourself arc eye. Uh so the uh, the uh, sculpture and pottery studio was like this big tiled studio and it had uh glass on one wall. So I'm there building this I went down to a scrapyard, I got a bunch of manifolds, right, and I was building this tree out of Exhaust manifold. I'm like, absolutely outrageous thing, like a gazillion pounds. And I'm using stick. Yeah. So I'm uh, learning how to stick weld on that thing. And uh, 
all the light is bouncing back in in the, uh, the back of my shield. So I wind up getting Archive. And I didn't know what the Archive was even a thing. So I got up, I woke up in the middle of the night. And my eyes are feeling really itchy. And uh, I went into the bathroom, turned on the lights in the bathroom, and I felt as though somebody just stabbed me in both eyes with a set of pencils. And um, at which point I was like, well, I best go see Matron because, you know, because, you know, we're in boarding school. We have a matron, of course. Right? Of course so, uh, so, you know, my eyes are burning. They're itching, absolute agony. I go over and see Matron and uh, she's like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Off to hospital. Maybe. So I went to hospital and they're like, oh, you're a pillock. What are you going to done? You're giving yourself an archive, which is basically the worst sunburn of the eyeball. Um, and they gave me a bunch of eye drops, uh, Novocaine, which basically just numbs everything. And I walked around in dark glasses for a week. So, so you know, I had that experience of welding, and I tried my best not to get Archi ever again. But because of the foundation that I had, beginning with my grandfather and my parents, and Terra Nova, which is the first school that I went to. Uh, which is why I first started shooting. That's the one with the giant pudding bowl. Ah. Yeah, my uh, jodrell bank. And then, the, which was actually, uh, it, they actually moved, Terra Nova got moved there during World War Two. There, there was actually tunnels underneath the school because to get people out of the <laughs> property during the air raids. Anyway, bye-bye. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I did woodshop there and I did... Um, you know, I was doing fly tying and, you know, all these kinds of things. And then go off to Hereford and that brings in all those skill sets. And it brings them into finite. And it's like, okay, you've tinkered with sheet metal. You've tinkered with this. You've tinkered with that. This is how it is done. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're laying bead, right? And you're figuring out how to build patterns for you know, a oil funnel. Then they go, here's an oil funnel. You've got to make this. Well, hey, presto, I've just been doing years and years and years of drafting. I learned how to draft a cone and how to extrapolate it into a flat pan and blah, 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 yeah. blah. So that's easy. I can do that. Yeah, so you're just constantly building yeah. on. and it's like, oh, they... and I look back, at the, look back at my life and it makes sense, all the little pieces that I not through any design of my own, just more happen chance of flowing through the wave of life, you know? So you finished your formal education. Yeah. You went to Africa where you were... No, from there I went and worked as a, in, a, in a blacksmith shop. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that was when I was doing Cranbrook and I was doing architectural stuff. So gates artistic. Yeah. And, okay. And it's functional artistic, you know. Yeah, I mean, the gate's got to functionally work, yeah. but it also has fleur-de-lis and grapevines. Yeah, and, 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 you know, we, we're British. We don't go for that. It's, oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Have, the, you know, the misunderstanding. heads and scroll forms and, you know, uh, you know fleur-de-lis for, for the French, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're misunderstanding, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, most of my iron work is, is from uh, New Orleans. So, uh, uh, right, so you've got that French influence, which when is I, really... Well, and when I close my eyes and think of a, a, like a wrought iron gate, yeah. it's tipped with the, the sharpened fleur-de-lis. Yeah. 
instead of the the proper spear point. Spear point. I, I, I hear it now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so went into a blacksmith shop doing architectural work. Yeah, yeah. Went to Africa teaching like really basic tool, tool making. Tool making, yeah, yeah. Um, and my time came to an end. I wound up being out there for four years, and it's like, okay, time to head back to reality, I suppose. <laughs> Let me know when you get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I still failed entirely. Um, I feel like there's a, a break between uh, leaving Africa and the goat farm. Yeah, so um, from leaving Africa, I went to move back to Britain and kind of failed, wound up in France. And uh, uh, ended up, uh, I was in France for, I think, almost three years. Did you take a right turn in Albuquerque? <laughs> so I wound up with a little cottage, a little stone cottage, like a two up, two down, so two rooms up, two rooms down. Uh, big old fireplace in the middle and a big old barn. And started blacksmithing in the community there, which was great fun. Um, you know, kind of working mostly with the expats and uh, in so doing, accidentally picked up another language uh so and i'm not excellent at any of them but you know i've got a, a dangerous handful of i mean should you ever need to surrender you you have the proper <laughs> language <laughs> but at least ask for a beer or something so, so you know like in africa or in kenya i picked up some meru not not a lot but some um some swahili and a lot of luo which is a tribal language which is the area that i was in you know, as a kid, I was speaking Dutch, and my next door neighbor was Danish. So I wound up, he and I um, wound up speaking a melange of <laughs> a melange of Danish, English, and Dutch. Just kind of hilarious. Little pigeon. Yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. And then, you know, being in Wales, I wound up picking up some Welsh. Uh, and it's kind of funny because, you know, the schools in Wales, uh, or the TV in Wales, they actually have Welsh. Uh, oh, yeah. Channel. And all the schools in that portion of Wales, North Wales, speak Welsh in school. They have Welsh class. So, um, but yeah, so I wound up in, in France. And, you know, at this point, I've got a girlfriend who's in Africa. So I'm kind of migrating back and forth. Oh, so you're still dating. Yeah, yeah. So we're still dating. And um, I was like, well, how do you feel about coming to Britain? So we, in uh, 2000, um, it was that night, it was that 2000, you know, the, the millennial um, celebration. We, as a family, got together up at my cousin's place in Cumbria, and uh, they live in a place called Far Head of Hail, right? And hail being the rocky stuff that falls from the sky. So they live at the far end of the head of that. So you literally, you keep driving until you go to the last cattle grid before you hit the moorland. And they've got this old stone terrell in the middle of the moors, out in the middle of nowhere. And Some hounds of the Baskervilles kind of... Uh... Yeah, and, you know, the, the washing, you put the washing on the line because none of us over there have dryers, right? So you put the washing on the line and it sits like this, horizontal, and it freeze dries. Right? But you take it off the line, give it a quick shake to get it back to shape. Uh, so poor Esther in this, um, you know, wintertime. Little culture shock. In Cumbria. She looked like that 
kid from uh, Christmas. <laughs> Christmas. With the yeah. 50 layers yeah. that he she, can't she's move. Got everybody's coats. He's like, <laughs> uh, her face has been squished up in, in this little tiny cowl hogster. <laughs> so, um, take me away from yeah, you. So, needless to say, uh, persuading her to stay in the British Isles was a little tricky. So, um, at which point, uh, she managed to get her, her brothers actually here in the US. Mm-hmm. So, her firstborn of her family could fly. And uh, he was already in the US. So, she's like, well, you know, let me see if I can get my credits moved across from she was at college already uh, in Nairobi. And I was like, well, I'll see if I can get a job. So anyway, she moved here and um, started college doing a business degree at Kennesaw. And I came, KSU Owls. Yeah. Go Owls. Go Owls. And, and, you know, back then, you know, KSU was not much of anything. So oh, I, <laughs> I grew up in Kennesaw and Marietta. Yeah. I remember when it was four buildings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she was not far after that. Uh, and... Um, I managed to get myself, uh, I came over to visit her and I managed to speak with the guild. I found, you know, our local blacksmithing guild, which is the Alex Wheeler Guild. And uh, I spoke to the folks over there saying, hey, you know, this is what I'd like to do. And uh, I managed to get a job with uh, Karina Mensoff, who's a artist blacksmith. Mm-hmm. Um, who, she's really fascinating work. She does, she's truly an artist who just so happened to pick blacksmithing as a medium, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Because, you know, you, you, it's, working with her, I got to make shapes that I would never have made, yeah. right? which is kind of crazy. Yeah, when you change the perspective from shapes that work towards a tool for a purpose. Yeah, to... or, or your classic British railings where it's all straight up and straight down, F-scrolls, C-scrolls, collars, all that kind of stuff, pierced joints, and all of a sudden she's like, let's do a Nautilus shell, which is like four foot across, made out of copper, right? But in like massive repose, right? Which I might be talking words you don't know about, but um, but it's like that big. Yeah, I haven't understood you for the last forty-five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> no repoussé. I, I uh, so don't know the term. Repoussé is so. If you see like the old suits of armor with the kind of relief. Oh, okay. Where it all pushes in and out. And yeah. It's all sheet work, or you see some silverware, you know, like a gravy boat or something like that. It's all like grapevines and stuff, but it's all pushed out. Yep. So that is a technique, a French technique, I suppose, with a name like that, which is a repoussé. So to repeatedly push, so mm. you push from the back, you push from the front. And strangely, my dad, when I was a kid, had this copper sheet that was a kind of very thin copper repoussé project, building or making a rendition of a galleon with mm. full sail and all the rest of it. So... Yet again, you had actually. (laughs) Right? And, you know, sheet metal works, what sheet metal work is. And it's kind of a fun thing to learn how to push up and down and kind of sculpt with it. So, you know, getting to do a shape like that and, you know, having had the experience of doing jig making and tool making and all that kind of stuff because of doing production iron work in the shops that I've been in, suddenly for me to build a ridiculous gate with these ridiculous shapes in it. So hard. 
Yeah, it's uh, just applying the, what is it, 37 basic shapes uh, in a new way? Yeah, I mean, so the way I look at smithing, it's 15 processes, right? So if I'm looking at the 15 processes, which are subdivided into forging, forming, joining, and heat treat, take away heat treat because that's just science or witchcraft, whichever way you look at it. And then if she got, floats, we burn her. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then you've got forging and forming and like represents forming. Okay, that's not that hard. Yeah. Push it this way, push it that way. Make sure there's a space. Don't right. over push it so it tears because that'll be sucky. But, you know, you have to start again. Uh, but but it, yeah, it was just a new application. Yeah. Yeah. And very cool because, you know, now it's like building entranceway gates for fancy homes. Yeah. Or building a vent hood for a fancy home. Yeah, now, now we're talking hundred thousand dollar gates rather than. I've never had a hundred thousand dollar gate, but I wish I would. I was yeah. trying to pad you a little bit, yeah. man. But uh, you know, you know, ten thousand dollar gate, yeah, yeah. You know, and probably in nowadays money, you're probably close to thirty thousand. Is. But it's yeah. You you went from building a. A gate that's purely a gate yeah. to gate that's artistry. Yeah. And, you know, in France, I got to do some semi-artistic pieces, um, which were fun. You know, I got to build spiral staircases and some more decorative railings, but nothing still kind of simplistic within its form. And then all of a sudden, I'm dropped into this universe. It's like, I didn't know that was possible. I didn't know... I say that more than most people do. (laughs) I don't know about you. Still to this day, like you grind a knife or you forge a a thing, right? A shape, and you're like, "How? How did that work out?" And I, I don't know how it worked out, but it did work out. So, you know, it's it's kind of crazy. Sorry, um, (laughs) I'm getting an interlude. Yeah, no. It turns out the haircut that I thought I had scheduled for tomorrow in Greenville is today in Greenville. Oops. Yeah. We can fix you. I got uh, obviously a settling torch down in the shop. Yeah, I've heard that's a new technique. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, getting here suddenly, whole new right? Really different shapes. Um, so, followed Esther to the States. Yeah. Um, started doing more artistic work. Mm hmm. Uh, in the Atlanta area? Yeah, all, all, yeah, Buckhead. Yeah. Yeah, Everything's Buckhead. You know, that whole area is, there's only a handful of us that do this stuff. And, you know, you're looking at Andrew Crawford, Michael Dillon, uh, Karina Mensoff, uh, myself for a while. Um, There's, there's a few other folks. Uh, Josh Smith, I think his name is. He's come up now. Uh, But, you know, we all know each other, and we all know each other's work. And, oh, um, oh Igor Litko. Litko is amazing. He, he's like this old uh, Georgian-Russian dude. Igor, Russian, huh? Dude, <laughs> but does really classic, like, that kind of old-school, flamboyant, almost Italian-style um, and work but with a slightly Georgian perspective. You know, cool stuff. So it's darker and bleaker. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, only does it in black. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> but, you know, you, you start 
start working in this universe where it's like, hey, we've got a custom stair builder who builds like elliptical staircases that run around the outside of an entrance hall and they want a railing that runs up that. Well, that's a complicated thing. But years of drafting, <laughs> making shapes. There are no impossibilities, just time and money limitations. Exactly. And at that time in that market, there weren't a lot of money limitations. No, there was, there was none. There was literally none. And they were just like, hey, here you go, $10,000 railing. Ching, you know, and it's like two feet. And, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Um, and this brings us up to the, the point that you ruined my life. Yeah. Um, short version on that was I had the pleasure of living just down the street from Mark's shop. And, uh, oh, yeah, it was the, the uh, torch stands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted tiki torch stands that would hold a beer bottle because I could put a little plumbing fitting in there. And then I think I did a little bit of woodworking for you on a project. Yeah. And the first chandelier that I was doing. Yeah. Yep. yep. And then uh, I, I asked the stupid question of how do you make a knife? Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, the first taste is free. Mark showed me how to make a knife. Yeah. And then this will bring us to the goat and hammer, which I think we're going to bring Jessica in on because this yeah. is a this is a part that I think that might be a good place to be the second episode on this one. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, so we missed out one little thing. Oh. Um, there was a moment in time where work started to drop off in the custom world, and I stepped in. That never happens. Yeah, imagine that, right? And I picked up a job working um, in the railroad industry, building originally just components for building railroad cars. Okay. So, and then from that, you went right back into industrial and I was back in industrial. Yeah. And they figured out, you know, I was sitting on a plasma bed, turning parts, flying cranes, learning how to use forklifts, this kind of stuff. And then, um, they figured out that I had kind of a little bit more diverse skill set. So, <laughs> and, you know, my name tag fell off and my name tag became blacksmith. And they moved me over to the weird component section where they literally had an old boy, who had been doing this job for like 40 years and who didn't, didn't know how to pass it on. Right? Uh, but it was all done by hand and most of the fixturing and tooling that he had, he had built for making those components. So I got moved over there and I got to use like an old school ultra graph torch, which is, it has like a magnetic gimbal on the top and an oxyacetylene torch. We're cutting like one inch plate to oh, wow. crazy profiles, but it ran along this gimbal track of a pattern, right? So when you got a new part, oh, you had to you got the blueprint, and you had to figure out what the offset was for the thickness of the torch tip that you use in the gimbal at the top, blah 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 blah, and you'd make your own master pattern, right? And I'm suddenly like, wow, this is actually pretty cool. Yeah, and there's the old boys don't leave textbooks behind on. Oh. Yeah, if it's not passed on, they die and it's gone. And it's gone. Yeah, and you know they figured out that I could actually work this stuff out, and I started making tooling and jigging. You know, and then there'll be times where the tooling department didn't have anybody to do a little fixture or something, so they threw it my way. I wound up making it. I started, you know, figuring out all these like 
different methodologies to tweak and mechanize the processes that we were doing over in that handwork area. And I made like little jigs and tools and all these kinds of things. And, you know, making simple mechanical components, you know, little uh, air rams and those kinds of things. And uh, a job opening opened up in the tooling department. I got moved over to tooling, wound up in tooling, learned we were building fixturing that's like 40, 50 foot long, 30 tons. So you had to lift it with two cranes to move it around. Yeah, and fixturing, I was thinking of parts, but you're working in a rail yard. You're talking. Yeah, we're building. So, you know, like a a coal hopper, right, that they pull along and big aluminum coal hoppers. So there are RDLs, RD6s, uh, you know, all these things. So like flapper doors and all this kind of stuff. Um, they have a rollover, which they actually grab the whole railroad car and flip it upside down. So it's a different car. So you've got all these fixtures, and as I say, they're big. Yeah. And then you're coming in, and you're dropping a fixture that's as big as this house, right? And the bays are about a mile long. And there's four bays with two production lines on either side of each bay with a railroad track that runs down the middle of it, gantry cranes, overhead cranes, Pattern making is one thing, but pattern making at a a 40 foot, 10 ton scale, I didn't even think about that. And then once you build a fixture in in the tooling shop, we then disassemble it, take all the components out. So I got to learn how to, you know, ride or control um, like forklifts and lulls and big forklifts as well, like the monster ones. Um, And you then drop it in. You bolt it all down, then you've got to shim it, right? Because the shop is more level than the line. So you then shim it in. So what you do, you learn how to use a theodolite. So, you know, like a a transom for surveying. Yeah. So, all right, get to learn how to use, so Uh, get to learn how to survey. Yeah. (laughs) Right? I didn't even think about it. You built it in a square shop and now you've taken it out. To this line that's, had production run for decades. And you got concrete is foobard, man. And you got to know how much the drop is so you know how much to account for. Yeah. So you shim the fixture. Once you've got the fixture as close as you can, you then shoot all the anchor points on the fixture and you start doing your 30 seconds adjustment. So you might have to put a little riser pad in there and tack it on. And... So then that... And, you know, kind of drifting between custom iron work, massive stuff. Yeah. I mean, when you build a fixture, right, that is holding the sidewall of a coal car, right, that's, I don't know, 40 foot long and 20 foot high, and it you rack up the walls, it's maybe got 20 walls, you rack up and they kind of conveyor feeding them in, and there's humans climbing all over it. This is some wacky stuff. You're build, building gantry rail. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the complexity when you start scaling yeah. up to that size. Yeah, it's insane. And you've got the, you know, the old guys on the shop floor, and you know, most of those tooling guys came off the shop, or mm. they all came off the shop floor, running production for 10 plus years. You know, the fact that I was only there for like nine months before they moved me across. But, you know, the guys who did the blueprints would bring the blueprints down, and the old boys would just sit there and tear them apart. <laughs> and be like, no, this can't be built. And that the guys on the shop floor would actually show the engineers 
what the fixturing and how to build it and all the rest of it. They'd have to go back up the hill and redo all their blueprints. Yeah. So, you know, so that's, I got to do that kind of crazy stuff and then drop back to building railings and staircases and suddenly it's like, <laughs> this is only a thousand pounds. Where's the yeah, challenge? Where's the challenge? You know, yeah. when you've got a railroad car, um, which is 40 foot long, and it's come out the jig because, of course, everything's been welded up, you know, hundreds and hundreds of welds on these things, and the thing's twisted and racked. And then I got taught how to straighten the railroad cars <sighs> using a not settling torch with a rosebud, like by creating these bow patterns. And you could actually straighten get a little bit here, yeah. a little bit there. You can actually straighten these. 40-foot railroad car. Hey, Kyle, how big a carbide hammer would you need to straighten a uh, <laughs> railroad car? <laughs> Might as well make it for a sledge. Yeah. It was wild, you know. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, the, the heat straightening thing is amazing. I've seen, like, people straighten big, like, one-inch thicker, thicker plates. And, yeah, yeah you, it's amazing. You don't think how much it expands when you uh, well, kind of, like, see it. So what actually happens is kind of it's really cool. So if you heat a ring, right? So you warm up a circle around, say, like a six inch, right? If you've got a high spot, you can heat up a ring around the outside of that high spot. And what it does, it will actually compress the high spot, the material of the high spot because of the expansion. It will upset it and thicken that material. And then when it cools off again, because it's made that chunk in the middle smaller when it cools down it'll actually take the rays out so you're actually technically thickening the material through heat yeah in some ways almost the the inverse of using the the hammer method yeah all right that, it's, it's wild it's that, wild that hurts me yeah that hurts my head for a minute that's a, that's a skill set where am i ever going to use that skill set <laughs> yeah well yeah. Let me tell you about this thing called Magna Cut. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, this is probably a good segue to break this episode and yeah. we'll come back um, five minutes our time, uh, uh, two weeks your time, and <laughs> talk about uh, the Goat and Hammer, um, Mark's left and right hand, Jessica, yeah. who is probably equally as competitive for most interesting woman in the world. She's way cooler than I am. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I got to <laughs> watch, I got to watch her work with train and feed her red tail hawk this morning. That's truthfully, that's why we were late logging on to this morning. Cause I was watching a falconer train a red tail hawk and it was pretty awesome. Nice. It's good to be me sometimes. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, you guys can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. You can listen to it anywhere that you've been hearing it now. And you can keep in touch with Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives at Dogwood Custom Knives uh, at his website and yep. Instagram. Uh, no longer Dogwood Custom Knives. <laughs> yeah. No, well, all the all the wonderful Instagram stuff that's going on. Uh, and you can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives at cagedailyknives.com. And I'm Cage Daily Knives on all the social medias. Thank you, everybody. And look forward to hearing more about the, the story of how Mark's built his business. Want to say good night, Dan? Good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. Well, let's take it to the edge. Because that's what's expected in this discussion. 
This is the Night Prospective.